Okay. Hello and welcome to Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Awabakal people, the traditional custodians of the unceded land, which I'm on at the moment and pay my respects to elders past and present. So one of the great pleasures of a long running show like Compulsive Reader Talks, and it blows my mind to think how long we've been running for, but uh, a long running show like this is that we get to have guests on more than once and we get to watch how their work changes, grows and unfolds. And today's guest, Beth Spencer, joined us in 2015. We actually had her on again uh, with a, a pre-recording as well that she'd done uh, and for Climactic, but she joined me directly in 2015 to read from and talk about her first memoir, Vagabondage. And today Beth is here to discuss her fantastic new collection, The Age of Fibs. <laughs> Hold up. Hold it up the right way. Where am I? Yes, yeah, yeah, actually. Yours beautifully disappeared into go. your background. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. So it, The Age of Fibs is a wonderful collection of stories, memoir, and microlit, which was published just uh, this year, fairly recently, by Spineless Wonders. So, Beth, it is absolutely lovely to have you back on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much, Maggie. I just love what you've been doing with Compulsive Reader. You were one of the very first ever um, podcasters in Australia for literary stuff, and you're still going strong. And I just want to say also that I'm I'm um, speaking from I'm coming from unceded Garingai land on the central coast. Wonderful. So, um, look, I, I absolutely love the way The Age of Fibs has come together. And many of the pieces were published in other forms or elsewhere, and I've seen many of them in different contexts. Um, but talk to me a little bit about the process of actually pulling the book together and how it became, you know, something that is in many ways quite different than the individual pieces. The, the sum of its parts has become almost a, a completely new, um, new entity. Mm. It is an entity and, and it's sort of, it's a strange thing because I, I really hesitated so many, it's had so many forms and so many possibilities like, you know, should I do it as a book of, because there's a, a blurring of the boundaries between fiction and essay and poetry in my work it's like should this be a book of essays or should this be a, you know, whatever it's, it's been something that comes up and then I go no it's who would want this you know <laughs> sort of stuff and and then um in 2018 I won the Carmel Bird Digital Literary Award mm. run by Spineless Wonders um and founded by the wonderful Carmel Bird and um that was for a manuscript, it was 30,000 words max. So I just pulled some pieces in it and put that in it and I won. And so then I had this ebook, which didn't really go very far. And I thought, should I expand it and make it into a print book or should I just move on? It's all that question of what you do with your body of work. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things I've learned in the past is that my work has more impact when I can put it into a body of work than when it's just separate pieces and that it creates something new when you have all the, the connections between it. So it was a long process of sort of looking at it and looking at the themes in some of the pieces and looking how they connected and shaping it and adding more pieces to it and um, bringing in some other pieces that didn't fit in the first manuscript. And 
starting to work out what's the crossover, what's the general themes, how is it working together as a book? And in the end, I really, yeah, it's got a, it's got its own energy of how it works in this form. And I'm just, it was so challenging to put it out because I thought this, this really wanted. And I've just had such great feedback that it's just been really reassuring to sort of, yes, it's a little book and it wants to go out there and it somehow managed to find a way. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's really amazing. I, you know, I read, an, as you know, I read an early version of, of The mm. Age of Fibs. And then in preparation for this session, I reread the print version, which I've got. And, uh, and I really felt, um, I, I love the early version I read, but I really felt that reading it, in, you know, in this current form with new pieces in there was a whole new experience. And, and some of the pieces that I knew quite well, um, I, I, I kind of, it was like I was seeing new things in them. I was seeing new correspondences and I was thinking about the connections between the pieces. Um, there was a whole new space of like a, a liminal space, if you like, between each piece that didn't exist when they were on their own. And that was a whole new yeah. bit of meaning. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is, I mean, this is, I, I've, it's taken me a long time to accept that this is the way I work. I'm, I'm probably never going to write a traditional novel, uh, or something like that. It's like, it's piecing different montage is my thing and bringing things together, even like Vagabondage. And I think we talked about that in the other interview is like telling a story through fragments, telling a story through different voices and different ways of coming at something. But it is that thing that pulls you through and you do, you're going through that kind of experience that you might in a novel, but it's coming at you with lots of gaps and spaces that people can sort of bring their own experience into it. And so there's gaps and spaces and fragments within a lot of the pieces and then between them. So it's just like this, yeah. And that openness is, is really, it's wonderful for a reader because I think it, it allows for, um, you know, kind of multi-pathways through the work <laughs> in which it can take on all sorts of different meanings. You know, we, as a reader, you always bring something to what you're reading, um, you, you know, Absolutely. your own unique perspective. And so this kind of collaborative um, approach to writing with your own work becomes a collaborative approach in the reader's mind, which is, you know, is really quite delightful. Absolutely. And I always sort of feel that a, a piece of writing, you know, there's a there's a benefit for me in writing something, particularly if I'm looking, exploring my own personal history in relation to public history and so on. Um, but then there's a whole other thing when it kind of lands and it gets read and it gets, you get that sort of response from it and that feedback and the, you know, discussions that go around it. And that's when something really shifts in me and hopefully in other people and it's like when the there is something about that kind of when the reader puts their energy into it too it really mm. sort of comes alive yeah so I love that thank you thank you yeah. well look um, <laughs> and, and you wrote of course you wrote new pieces for this but one of the pieces that you that's on its third iteration uh is bewitching um and and also you know you you've created these lovely little magnets as well so I have your bewitching magnet <laughs> on my fridge so I'm looking at it and it was reminding me of you know watching bewitched as a kid um you know my grandparents bed when I was sick but anyway it's um it's on its third iteration and um and I'm just wondering how much that piece has changed in each of the different incarnations and why you chose it to begin um yeah look it was originally I think oh, because a lot of those pieces I, I want to thank 
what I call the golden years of Radio National. And there was people like Claudia Taranto, Brent Clough, um, people from Listening Room, Robin Ravlich and all those who really created the most amazing um, space for freelance writers to come in and work with radio, with sound and performance and and my work sort of really suited that and they were they're really nurturing though it was great unfortunately none of that's really not much of that's available still at radio national but um i think i started with a, a an interview i did with claudia taranto about bewitch for a program that she was doing and then when the bewitched movie came out i wrote a piece for the age i was doing some columns occasionally for the age and so i wrote a piece on that and then um, I think when I was working on this, I thought I was started recognising that one of the themes is the way we use popular culture to mm. create our, how it merges in with our own stories and our own histories. And we, we utilise those stories to work out who we are. And so Bewitched, you know, just seemed a really important part of that. And so I took the old uh, column and reshaped it and redid it as a um, like a um, whatever it is a crossover between micro lit poetry whatever it's a bit of everything essay mm -hmm. in there. Would you like me to read that one? I definitely would. I, I would like you to read it. I'm just going to um, flag one line which I particularly loved and mm -hmm. which I feel kind of colors the rest of the book. So uh, mm -hmm. I'll flag it just before you read it so that people can listen out for it in context. <laughs> But this is the line, the, you know, the feminine, the queer, the magical, the eruption of the repressed right here in my living room every night at six o'clock, busting open all the doors and windows, letting in the stars. So I <laughs> just love that line. Yeah, well, look, I mean, the 60s TV shows that I kind of cut my teeth on, um, and that was, I didn't have many books at, in my home. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was a TV baby. And so that kind of narrative language of TV, which is montage, and which is all the cutting in between things, and then you have the advertisements popping in as well, and might go to a news flash. I think that's really, really influenced my style of writing. And they were when you actually look into them, they were quite radical in, you know, the way they talked about, um, well, you know, I'll, I'll read the piece. And read the piece. Let's, let's, yeah, let's hear yeah. it. <laughs> okay. I've just got to find. It's right at the start. Yeah, I was going to read it off the screen because my oh, okay. eyes aren't so bad. <laughs> um, bewitching. Six o'clock is the witching hour, Samantha flying in on her broomstick, burning the dinner, transforming into a black cat, leaping into what's-his-name's arms. I lie on the green carpet transfixed by the television, pretending I can't hear my mother as she calls and calls from the kitchen. Girls, come set the table for dinner. Who would believe that Sam, who can conjure anything at the twitch of her lovely nose would willingly trade wizardry for a kitchen whiz. Hm, that was the fantasy part. Everloyal help me to Durwood as he casts his dreary capitalist spells, manipulating desire and peddling illusion. No prizes for guessing who's the real creative genius. So many contortions and tricks necessary to allow the man of the house to believe he's the head the laugh track <laughs> but I didn't miss the way Sam keeps coming down with mysterious ailments like that morning she finds the doors and windows all sealed against her 
trapped in the house. All the time, everything she touches turns to gold, a guilt complex. And the day, whenever she sneezes, a bicycle or a tricycle appears. It's totally logical, announces Dr. Bombay. In fact, it's psychological. Dr. Bombay twirls his moustache and diagnoses the problem. Sam has been suppressing her powers. The solution, simple, start using them. I curl on the fleur lounge, biting my fingernails, noticing how Sam flinches at Darren's anger, his constant criticism when anything goes a tiny bit wrong. Julius Caesar in the kitchen, for instance, instead of a Caesar salad. That hint of violence under the laugh track. But what do you expect if you agree to give up your powers? To the other witches, Sam is a fallen woman, a drudge to a man. Meanwhile, here's Serena, super fun groovy, dark lady to Sam's fair maiden. Fly me to the moon, croons one of Serena's lovers, and next minute, there he is, up among the stars. Another one gets turned into a bed warmer when she, tri when she tires of him. Everything so literal and full of puns, like dreams, with Endora perched on the stairs, the mother-in-law of all jokes come home to roost. For half an hour each weeknight, I am part of a coven, exploring my Wiccan heritage, this quicksilver world where the galaxy is one's backyard and where men can be part of it, but the feminine rules supreme. The feminine, the queer, the magical, the eruption of the repressed right in here into my living room every night at six o'clock, busting open all the doors and the windows, letting in the stars. Thank you. So Thank you. Uh, <laughs> a beautiful reading. <laughs> and uh, really, um, for my, to my mind, you know, uh, and this happens throughout the whole of the book, I think um, you take, I guess, this kind of kitschy 1970s and 80s <laughs> popular culture, like bewitched and you know of course fatal attraction the monkeys <laughs> all of, and, this, and, and you know all of these things that I I guess I always thought of as you know a lesser art but you elevate them to something that's really quite um, quite extraordinary I think um, and, and you know and there's there's other there's all sorts of other um, artifacts that are through the book, like those external artifacts, as pictures, the drawings, and you know the Fibs bra, which I have you know, I had to look up, even though I have several similar um, bras like that myself. They're very comfortable. Um, but there's, a, there's a kind of referencing here that conflates memory and the fictive, which is, I guess, another of the prevalent themes that ties the book together. Yeah, well, memory is um, you know it's such a complex thing as we know, and you remember you you rewrite your memories every time you evoke them again and every context you know so if you get triggered by one thing for a memory you're going to draw something different out of it and it's it's like what you were saying when these pieces are put in a certain order together in the book they have a they they pull off each other and that's what memory does it's always um re Reinscribing, redoing it, and you can really play with memory in a you can either just re trigger over and over and over again and just redo the same thing, or you can play with it memory and turn it slightly so it becomes you know the me it's the meaning you attach to a memory or something from the past that you're bringing into the present that 
helps you then choose different in the future. So I love that sort of working with memory and public memory, private memory, and the way they intersect and play off each other and so on too. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. And and that is, of course, when you're working with these shows that are so much a part of, I mean, particularly, I guess, you know, for a certain generation, they become a kind of inherent part of who we are, right? They're this, you know, you, you, we don't think about yeah. them that much because they are popular culture. But, you know, you can add to it all the different references that run through your final piece as well, which, you know, to my mind, almost in a way circles back to Bewitched because it's a, a similar time period to the one you're referencing. Um, this idea that, you know, um, you're, you're actually taking this public memory of these shows and these public shows, and you know you're you're weaving them in as additional artifacts along with the the personal, the pictures, and you know the um, the drawings and the other things that make up the final piece. Which true, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a, there's a sort of a, a genre that's come up in the last few years called autobibliography, where people will take a famous book like George Eliot's. Mm -hmm. Middlemarch or something like that and weave that into their personal memoir and I guess for me it's taking popular culture and doing something like that with it as well and the piece at the end um, yes it's it's a sort of a memoir in lots of fragments and photos and then the reconstruction of the photos which is like what we're talking about with memory and so um, perhaps I'll just explain um, so with I actually can hold it up for those that are watching on video. Um, with this, the this was a piece for a book edited by Beth Yarp quite a few years ago. And um, the brief was to write about your family using photos. And everybody else was sort of smart enough to use photos of dead people. Whereas I sort of just sort of pulled out five, uh, just by instinct, I thought that one, that one, that one, and picked out five photos and... So it ended up sort of being an extremely challenging piece to write because my family, my parents were going through a particularly difficult thing, which sort of exploded the family a bit. And I was writing about it at the same time. So it was like finding a way to write about it that is honest and revealing at the same time as I could use certain, certain tricks of writing to not actually have to spill the beans about you know, what was actually happening in my parents' marriage, which I can talk about a bit more openly now. Um, and what I ended up doing, um, a friend of mine, Helen Kunder-Civic, was a really good photographer. And so I asked her, could we recreate the photos? So we took those five photos and then we recreated them in the present with people. Because one of the things I sort of discovered as I was writing it was the way we recreate the family in our relationships mm. and particularly if there's any you know difficult relationships you sort of you you try and make it better by creating a family so for me I created a family when I went to uni and I met these people who are still my friend family a lot of them and it was interesting how I sort of slotted myself in as, as very much the younger sister in a way Mm. again and there was still a lot of those dynamics and so it's like you're taking something that's in a form that you can work with and you're making it a bit you know an improved version but you still have those a lot of those issues to sort of work through so it's like you keep recreating things to work through them so with the photos for example the first one is 
the 21 grandchildren. And so at the end of the piece, there's a photo with, I actually got 21 friends and they were fantastic. They all sort of got in the right position. Like I, they were each assigned a, a person to, to, to copy in the photo and they, um, you know, they did the actions that. and so on. And there just happened sure to be three. Yes, yeah, probably can't see it. But there just happened to be three babies born around the, the right time. So we had the three babies that matched the photo. So it just worked out beautifully. But um, it's it was interesting to see. So it was like the family you're born in, the family of creation, and playing around those sort of um, memories and things. Yeah, and, that, and that's another theme, I think, that works through the book is this notion. And, and, and also, to, it's one of the things I think that ties the fiction and the nonfiction together, which is this idea of how identity is a construct. And you play oh, with that and, and you play with that in so many different ways. I mean, maybe it's, a, I guess, one of the things, the age of fibs, the title, of course, um, as well, ties into that. But one of the things that um, the book, I suppose, shows is how um, consistent that is a theme for you as well, this notion of constructing the identity and what that means and what that looks like in a fictional sense in a, and you know, why life in some ways you know, is also a construct of identity. Yeah, I think I think most writers have their recurring themes. And mm. I think part of it is accepting that this is a recurring theme, and it's okay. And for me, it's like, sort of, how did I get here? Is, is who am I? And how did I get here? Mm. And another thing that keeps coming up for me is that we're not identity is not a solid thing. You know, we're sort of we're lots of identities, we're lots of depending on who we're relating with. Identity is a, a relational thing, and it depends on what you're doing and, and who you're with and what's happening in your life. It, you're just constantly changing, and, and, and those relationships change. Everything well. changes, you know, when, yes, when they people change, die, you, you, change you find you're yeah. continually having those changes in your relationship, which is quite unusual. But um, I love the line in the true story of an escape artist, your final piece, where you say, Every, every <laughs> family member is a competing family historian which is of course true and then you follow that with I make no claims to be objective I'm a habitual fiction writer a rewriter of history yes indeed and um yeah it 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 it, it I I asked hmm, I don't think anybody in my family except maybe my brother has read one of my brothers Brian has read this who's been a, a good supporter of my writing for a long time and um and I said to him, how are they going to cope with, you know, me, the youngest child, writing about the family in this way? And he said, they'll be very, very proud and very, very ashamed. <laughs> <laughs> or the other way around, they'll be very, very ashamed and very, very proud. <laughs> right, yes, right, right. It's amazing what people um, cotton on to or what they don't like as opposed to what they do like, right? You know, the really um, horrific revelations don't seem to bother people, but, you know, calling them daggies. That's so true. That's so <laughs> true. And and that's that's another, I've forgotten that one. My I did actually show my mum because I sort of didn't want someone else to sort of find it. And Because in the original book, they actually used a photo of me, my sister, my brother on the front cover. So um, not that my family are readers, but I just thought, oh, it'd be horrible if she, you know, someone said to her, you're, you know, did you really? that Beth had done that so I showed it to her one day and she sat there and, and read it and at the end she said hmm well, what I don't understand I think I think I said, oh no first of all I said to her look I just want to explain why I labeled one of the photos the daggiest family in the world <laughs> we really were she said oh I don't mind our family being the daggiest family in the world I mean I said hmm 
do you know what a DAG is? And she didn't know what a DAG was, but it was the most something or other family in the world. So she was happy with that. Oh, right. And uh, <laughs> like that was a hypothetical example. I didn't uh, realise it was a yeah, true yeah, one. <laughs> yeah, it was. And, um, and then also she said, but what I don't understand is why is it called a true story of an escape artist when it's not true? I said, oh. So which parts did you think were not true? And she said, oh, well, as, you know, and there's a part in it where the child me is standing in front of, you know, just learned some swear words when I went to secondary school and is standing in front of the noxious weed bush, which we had in our garden and swearing my head off, absolutely just swearing every filthy word I could at this bush. And she said, but that wasn't true. I thought, let's, you know, (laughs) how would she know? She wasn't there, but just this absolute confidence that that couldn't have been true. Little Beth wouldn't have done that. So, yes, people, it was interesting that people saw what they want to see a lot of the time. And that's a really comforting thing. Yeah. And then also, isn't there a kind of history of saying the true story for non-true stories? Absolutely. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, well, it's also that play on bullshit bullshit artist as well yes exactly exactly so it's it's lovely there's so many different you know plays happening so I I really want to get you to read at least one more thing Um, Mm -hmm. although I think we could talk for about three hours but um, (laughs) one of the pieces that stood out for me because it is quite different is in the hologram forest oh yes Um, and you wrote that one specifically for this collection so it's the only sci-fi it does work beautifully to my mind but how did you before you read it, how did you work out what was needed to fill the gap? Like, at what point did you go, I need, an, I, you know, I need a piece that's going to do X? I wish I was that intentional. <laughs> um, I'm really glad that it does do X. Um, that has an interesting history, that piece too. Because I act, that's actually a sort of a fragment that I lifted out of a novel that I might write one day. So I started a novel called um, I Make the Beds They Lie In. Mm-hmm. And the idea was this um, somebody in 2042 who works in one of the bunkers of the rich where they're sort of surviving with everybody else outside and she's a maid. And um, just... Yeah, it just felt that little piece. And then because of the Beverly Hills connection and a lot of it's just done by instinct, you know, as you know. And so Beverly Hills just seemed right in there. It took me a while to go, yes, it is right, because Beverly Hills is all about that kind of oil and, you know, discovering oil and wealth and all of that kind of stuff and the choices you make as when you get wealth. And also just it just seems impossible to write something at the moment without referencing climate climate crisis Mm. and that's just so and it was interesting to see it in those 1960s programs too when you think of the Jetsons and the Beverly Hillbillies there was this sort of anxiety about what's happening with this post-war modernism wealth change of lifestyles you know we the houses all changed everything and there was this kind of what's the future going to be even, um, you know, I Dream a Genie with the, you know, the astronauts and so on. So it worked out really well to have a piece that I could pull out of that and just make into its little moment. And this idea of the hologram forest, which is a fictive space based on, you know, which is referencing a real space and so on. And that question of sort of, yeah, what does our involvement in it 
change things mm. and so on. So I'm yeah. really glad you saw you picked that up because I didn't realise it was actually, you're right, it does fit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Could, could, would you read that one? Yeah, sure. Um, in the Hologram Forest, 2042. She says, if we make space for them, create a moment of habitat, will they return, do you think? A water bowl, a tree they like with fruit, soil for worms and grubs, prickle bushes for safety. He says, the trick is to hold them in your thoughts, merge the components as a thought animal, see how it takes up residence, see how it alters things. The top tier predators, so essential. The small and the swift footed, the moss and the lichen. Create an ecology with your mind. But in the hologram forest, the air is humid with loss. At night, when she leaves the room where the others watch ancient videos of the Beverly Hillbillies and Mr. Ed, a horse is a horse, she seeks him out in the tech wing. They lie under the dome and watch real stars, real stars, dead stars. Are they real? Or is this part of the hologram? She doesn't ask. The forest sounds have been getting louder, menacing sometimes. He is angry with her. She cannot give him what he wants. She's good at spotting who will survive and who won't. What does it mean to love a particular thing, a particular being, a tree or a certain animal or bird when it no longer exists, when the thread of that love is sliced clean through? In her sealed sleeping capsule, she writes in her diary, lately when I go into the hologram forest, it is as if the creatures are aware of me. The kookaburra alights on a branch and stares the water dragons shuffle closer, raising a front leg. Ta-ta. The warning off wave. You. Time to go. The dingoes sniff the air. They turn their heads in my direction. The kangaroos bound away. Are they able to think, these echoes and figments of the past? What do they see when they look at me? Fear is a claw. What have we done? Am I doing this? He says, are you frightened for them? What is it makes them sniff the air? Do they know what is coming? Or are you frightened for yourself, for us, for what we have become? She says, is the forest about them or is it about me? He says, is it even a forest if it exists only for us, if there is no them? So such a powerful piece. And, you know, I think, um, again, by having it in that spot in the collection, I'll just answer my own question. By having it in that spot <laughs> in the collection, <laughs> I, it just feels to me like it, it really does um, raise this question about responsibility and, and loss and, and trauma and, and what remains, you know, what remains. 
and all of those things color the pieces around it in such a, you know, a, a beautiful way. Yeah, <clears throat> sorry. Going back to that about how we remember things, which is what history is, is a, is a kind of a public memory, a public remembering, um, writing history, how we choose to do that, every every choice we make, really, every time we go to the supermarket and make a choice, um, is colouring our future, is changing our future. And it's that kind of sort of, even though there's that terrible grief and feeling of powerlessness about what's happening with climate, the climate crisis, there's also we all do actually are creating the future every time we do anything. And every time we remember something, we're also changing the kind of choices we offer to ourselves, if you like, yes. in how we remember it, what we, how, the way we look at it and so on. So, yeah, thank yeah. you for recognising that. You're a wonderful reader and you're such a brilliant interviewer. This has been wonderful. Thank you. Oh, look, it's, it's also a little bit of hope. It's a weird kind of hope, but it, there's a hope in, mm. even in that piece that... Um, that something has remained, you know, that it's not all mm. lost. Um, and that, I think that colors, again, the, the other pieces around it, including, you know, again, for me, one of the, I mean, it's all poignant, but you know, that the final piece, um, which really is quite a long one, uh, the true story of an escape artist, um, which also has, you know, very, you're very subtle with it, but there is this kind of sense of, of, of kind of a trauma running through it. It's in the unspoken undercurrent, it's the flip side of secrets. Uh, you know, I think about Uncle Neil, for example, who, mm. you know, I, I keep wondering about him because, uh, you know, he just disappears. And so, um, and we don't get to know what is the secret, you know, we sense it, we feel it. Um, and you talked a little bit about this whole notion of coming at things sort of, you know, in piecemeal and slant and allowing it to unfold. So to maybe just uh, finish off by talking a bit about that. Yes, and it's, it's interesting you raise that in the context of the hologram forest, because mm -hmm. one of the things that I find extraordinary about the planet um, is that, you know, things come back. And even when you sort of have think that you've, you know, things have been eradicated or lost or extinct, that if you do provide a bit of a space, a context, a, a, and the thought concept is, is the start of that as well, that things come back. It's amazing how things regenerate. And so it's, it is interesting that even with my family, that was written at a time when I wanted to escape. You know, I was trying to find a way to escape and I found the threads too strong. It was, it was very hard to sort of just go, I'm just going to get out of here and create my own family in my friends. And it's interesting that sort of you, you hang in there long enough with something and things shift completely. So various things that have happened, which I'll probably write about sometime over the last, you know, decade or so have profoundly altered my relationship in that family. So that whole thing of being the youngest out of six and, you know, what the youngest can do, what the youngest can say and those kind of constraints on that you get quite locked in in a large family, that you're the baby of the family and that's all you are in their eyes forever. Even that has kind of taken a shift. So it's like sort of everything is actually changeable mm. in my way of looking at things. And it's sort of um, you just keep going, you keep playing with things enough and you play with it with that intentionality rather than playing with it to sort of reinforce something. You think you know about something. If you've always got that question, if you're doing it with curiosity and question, then it sort of can open up into something, you know, different. Yeah, I also feel this is just um, 
you know, this sense of almost decolonizing the language that runs through the book. This, um, but you know, the, again, what we talked about in the beginning from Bewitched, you know, this kind of this queer, this magical, this kind of um, uh, undermining of mm. you know what Darren represents, Darwin. 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 Oh, yes, yes. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yes. What's his name? <laughs> like, what's his name? Yeah, Darwin. That's his name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, for those you... that don't know Bewitched, that's what his mother-in-law always got his name mixed up. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I did that deliberately. Anyway, uh, yeah, you know, what he, you know, this this representation of of kind of you know the the straight line capitalist. Um, uh, I guess, notion of, of hierarchical structures that, mm. you know, seems like, again, this undercurrent through the book about, um, which it, there is a kind of mystical quality to that. And it is a little bit subversive as well, which is really quite beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I guess, I'm, as I say, you do a lot of these things by instinct, and then you get a brilliant reader like you who makes you go, Oh, that was a good idea and it is that sort of like framing right at the start that idea of consumption mm. and then going to the end um, with the hologram forest followed by the family one because the family is a unit of consumption and production and mm. reproduction and so on so um, that's a really lovely way of looking at it thank you yeah so we're we're nearly out of time unfortunately um but just one more question um Beth what kinds of things are you working on now what are you is has anything taking shape or are you have you got an interesting um concept that you're playing with what 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 can we look for um so I'm working on another memoir and fragments and it's tentatively titled at the moment such as life in a small town and it's looking at um like the first 10 years of my life but looking at the whole family complex in a way and my position in it as the youngest child and in a family where everything was very much about work, hard, you know, farming family, hard work. My father was a farrier, so it was, it was manual work. Um, we didn't have many books, art wasn't valued. And then you've got this sort of little kind of creative child who is in that mix and so I'm exploring the kinds of things she did to survive and also trying to sort of in the writing of it also give her a bit of a way out as well if that makes sense it does but also but also to sort of to rev in doing so it's not just focused on that child me but my mother's life my father's my brother's like that kind of that whole the way the family functioned in terms of the way anger was very repressed and there was this constant sort of repression of uh, and secrets like you're saying about that sort of so it's that kind of chronic it's just, it's what they call in therapy the small t trauma and I always think that you shouldn't underestimate the small t trauma it's that chronic daily repression of feelings and undervaluing of certain of all parts of a person that happens you know particularly in I suppose well, I don't know if it particularly but in in a lot of country families in the 60s yeah, but that's what I'm working on <laughs> can't wait to read it and I'm, I've already read some of it so I know it's fantastic so uh, now we really are out of time but Beth, it was wonderful talking with you again uh, and congratulations to talk to you. once again on the fabulous See if I can get it to not fade into my background. <laughs> <laughs> the age of fibs. <laughs> well, for really... those that are only listening to the audio, we're laughing because on the on the, the Zoom background, when she holds it up, it disappears. Yes. So it's like bewitched and magic all at yeah, once. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Thank you very much. And, and bye for now. Bye. See you later. Bye-bye.